Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science inside podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Hello, um, Elizabeth Varga. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you today. You are a licensed genetic counselor, um, and you're also the director of clinical genomic research and development at the Institute for Genomic Medical Med, Genomic Medicine, medic, Medicine, not Medical, uh, at the Nationwide Children's Hospital. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Everything that you do. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I am a licensed genetic counselor. I've spent about 20 years um, seeing patients with various genetic disorders, but specialized primarily in pediatric blood and cancer genetics. In my current role, I am in a research um, role where I oversee development and implementation of different genetic research protocols. And we partner with clinicians in several areas of our pediatric hospital to implement those. Right, right. Um, so do you mainly work with children or do you work with people of all ages? Well, we work a lot with families. So in genetics, we always say the patient is our family is a family. So our patients are generally under the age of 18, although in a lot of health conditions that start in pediatrics, you might take care of a patient or family member um, until adulthood. So I really do end up seeing a range of people. Right, right, right. Um, now we are, in case um, our audience hasn't figured it out yet, talking about genetics um, in today's episode, mainly about how genetics affects personality. Um, and we're going to go into a lot of that later. But first, we have a segment we call Have You Met Elizabeth Varga, where um, we like to just get to know you a little bit um, and warm up <laughs> just before we <laughs> kind of get into the media part of the episode. Are you ready to take some questions? Yeah, sure. Okay, fantastic. Um, what is your favorite book? Oh, that's hard to pick. Um, I do. I would say that I am a fan of Brene Brown and Atlas of the Heart is one of my more recent favorites. Mm -hmm. Brene Brown has shown up. She's been recommended so many times on our show. <laughs> um, she's just incredible. Uh, what about a favorite movie? This one is really tricky. I love um, Shawshank Redemption, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it was filmed in my state of Ohio where I live. Um, but really, I just love the themes of friendship in that movie. Yeah, it's always a plus when something is filmed in your kind of home, hometown or your regional area, but then you also end up actually enjoying the movie and connecting with it as well. I think it's a real bonus. For sure. For sure. Um, what about a podcast? Uh, what's a podcast that you've been listening to lately? I have been a pretty consistent listener of one called Personality Hacker. Um, they have actually inspired me on my personal personal growth journey that we'll touch upon later. Um, but I've listened to that podcast consistently for about four years. 
Wow, personality hacker. All right, I think that's the first time that's been brought up on the show, but we'll we'll add that down to a very long list of recommendations. There you go. Um, What about a famous role model that you do or have looked up to? I am definitely a fan of the Obama family. So both Barack Obama, our former president, and his wife, Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama, yeah, great, great ones. Um, And what's the last course that you completed? So again, I have to go back to Personality Hacker. Um, I've done a lot of training through them recently, and they offered an advanced class called Profiler Dynamics, and that was the most recent course I completed. What was that about? So um, one of their their courses is called Profiler Training, where it teaches you actually to do an interview with people to understand their personality types. And the profiler dynamic class took it to a higher level where you actually are more focusing on the health of the person and looking at the stages of their health or different ways that their personality might show up in health or dishealth. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty cool. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of our, our segment. So our audience has gotten to know you now. Um, we're all best friends. <laughs> and we might move on um, to our interview segment uh, where we're going to talk a bit more about genetics, um, personality, and how the two are kind of interlinked with each other. Now, our show is about personal development. So one thing I like to ask the guests to start with is how do you define personal development? Well, I definitely think of it as a verb, first of all. all. So it's an action-oriented thing in my mind. So I describe personal development as really making a commitment to furthering your understanding of yourself, of others, and then also the environment around you, and always moving that forward to become the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what do you feel are the main challenges Um, with personal development? I think because as you um, really seek to grow yourself, if you're truly doing the work, you're going to uncover some darker parts of yourself that might be harder to accept or acknowledge. Um, And that can be painful and really require uh, digging deep into things that might make you uncomfortable. Yeah, it requires just a bit of extra work, right? When you're confronted with something that you don't really want to see and it's about yourself. Um, yeah, just a lot of effort uh, that you probably didn't foresee when you started. Yes. Motions. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so let's kind of get down to it for those people like myself who are not so good at science. What are genes? (laughs) Well, good news for you is that part of the job of a genetic counselor is to explain, uh, genes in a very basic way, in an understandable way. And since I work with kids, I'm even used to explaining it to like nine-year-old children. So (laughs) we're good. We're good to go there. Um, so essentially if you think of genes, um, our bodies are made up of billions of cells and within them, there is the DNA code. Um, that we like to think of almost like as a recipe. So it provides instructions on how different parts of the body grow and develop. So a gene is just a section of that DNA. Sometimes we compare it to beads on a string. If you imagine a long string or a bracelet and you have beads along it, the genes are kind of those sections that are used to, um, sections of DNA that are used to encode different parts of the body, make different proteins. Right, right. And like, I guess my 
understanding of genes very much comes from the movie Gattaca, uh, which we were forced to watch <laughs> watch in year nine science. Um, how how accurate how accurate is that? Like, what about that well, is inaccurate? It's, it's getting crazy eerily accurate. So, okay. um, in some ways, um, we I think that that movie has good ethical messages that are really important um, to understand in the field of genetics because we always want to think about eugenics and that history of using kind of genetic understanding for maybe negative purposes. Um, and so I do think we're getting to an age where we can sequence genes very readily. So there's about 20,000 different genes in our body um, and we can really look at them in great detail now and make a lot of predictions. So that aspect of Gattaca is getting a little bit too close to reality. Mm -hmm. Great to know. <laughs> very, very optimistic. Um, how, how do genes correlate with personal development? So I think um, with personal development, you can continually grow and evolve. Um, genes also, we are born with kind of our genetic information that is a baseline um, for our bodies but certainly genetic changes also evolve over time. So, um, you know, things like certain diseases like cancer actually can be caused by changes in your genes. Um, so just like it's important to personally develop it to keep yourself healthy, obviously we wanna do the best to ensure that, you know, we keep our DNA is healthy by avoiding things like radiation or other toxins that could cause problems to our DNA as well. So genes are not set in stone. Yeah, um, although we are born with the DNA code, um, cells divide constantly, right? And so as those cells grow and divide, new mutations can definitely develop and they might just be isolated to a few cells in the body. Right, right. And and again, like that few cells, because it's kind of like a line of code almost, even just a few cells can make like a huge difference <laughs> in how things change. Yeah. And that yeah. is like the state we're at with cancer and understanding the genetic basis of cancer. So the good news is that our body has lots of checks and balances. So if things start to go awry, like your immune system or other things uh, are there to help regulate that and hopefully mm -hmm. avoid any DNA mutation from getting out of hand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess that that's kind of genes. I want to talk personality. How, how do you define personality? Yeah, so the personality is somewhat hard to define. A lot of people talk about um, traits of personality or temperaments. They might talk about um, cognitive functions, which in the world of personality I study, which is um, Jungian psychology, there's a lot of emphasis on cognitive functions. But holistically, personality is um, really used to describe a set of emotions, feelings, how we might see the world through our perspective, our different thoughts. Um, and how kind of we're wired in a way to receive information, make decisions with that information and show up to the world and get feedback. Mm -hmm. And are there like personality types? Are humans even wired in that way? So part of the profiling dynamics class that I was describing earlier, um, it focuses on the 16 personality types or really the Myers-Briggs system, also Jungian kind of analytic psychology. And that is focused on the concept that there's 16 types of personality. 
Um, that system, obviously, it's well accepted by some, and then others have a lot of critiques of that system of personality typing. Um, there's other systems that exist, almost too numerous to count at this point, but most people in the scientific community talk a lot about the big five, which is more of um, a temperament, uh, and it has been more replicated as a measure of study of personality. Right, right, right. Um, I guess how how do you how do genes then kind of determine do they determine our personality first of all um but if not how do they correlate yeah great question so i'm sure that you've heard the the kind of phrase nature versus nurture so Mm -hmm. nature is the concept of us being born predisposed to certain traits or tendencies by our genetic information so certainly there is a nature component And then there's also a nurture component. So um, for most things, we are not really just uh, designed by our DNA. Things can adjust over time or our environment really influences that. Mm -hmm. So when they've tried to look at personality, um, it is sometimes difficult because personality can be hard to quantify. So in the scientific world of just even classifying personality and getting consensus around that is one complicating factor. But the way they've attempted to discuss, to uh, examine whether or not genes do influence personality is primarily looking at twins. So if you look at identical twins versus fraternal twins, you can actually separate, well, identical, they have the same DNA that they're born with and fraternal twins share 50% of their DNA. But if you look at the environment, it should be relatively controlled, at least in early years. So they use twins a lot to determine how much of traits are hereditary in that sense. They also can do family studies. That's a lot of what we do in our institute. Um, And so based on that, our best guess is that it's about 40 to 50 percent of our personality that is influenced by inheritance. And then the remaining half or so is influenced a lot by the environment. 40 to 50 percent is a lot to be influenced yeah. by inheritance from our families yeah <laughs> is it kind of is it specific so when you say 40 to 50 percent is it kind of usually specific parts that tend to be passed on more than others or is it is it kind of just random an assortment of like all of your personality traits I think that we are still really studying that. Um, There is an ongoing study uh, by a woman named Denise Cook, and she is uh, from a group called Personality Genie, and she's trying to correlate those things um, to understand this better. From the published literature, when they look at things like the big five personality traits, um, they have correlated certain tendencies like neuroticism, which is one of their measures to be more genetic. Um, And so I think that we're still working that out, but it does seem that maybe certain traits or certain temperaments might be more inherited, if you will, than others. Uh Yeah, that's, yeah, I'm still shocked at like that 40 to 50%. I always assumed, at least I think the kind of common colloquialism is that it's just a very small part of it that's kind of our inheritance and then the rest of it is all nurture. But uh-huh. yeah, 40, that's, that's half, half. That's, that's a fair amount. Um, I, I guess, can genetic testing help us better understand who we are? And I guess another kind of 
one part of that question is what can genetic testing actually do for us? Like, what does it quantify? Great question. Yeah. So there's a ton of different ways to do genetic testing for one. And that's really changed a lot in recent years due to advances in technology. Um, where I work and some of the research we do, we're focusing mostly on sequencing the genome. So really every base pair of DNA in a person's body. And we also do a lot of family studies. So we look at the parents or even siblings or extended families all together and, and read through that code. Um, our focus a lot of times in our work is more um, looking at disease causation than just common, um, common tendencies. Um, but we definitely find valuable information. So we do have some of our research that focuses more on psychiatric diseases. And for the most part, again, these are nature and nurture combinations, but you can often find certain genes that have caused maybe how you process certain hormones to be different or might um, relate to a gene that has to do with neural connectivity. So mm. we definitely in a medical setting do learn a lot of information by studying our genes. And then of course, in the modern age, there's also been a kind of rise in what we call direct to consumer testing where people do it more for a recreational tendency. Um, and so you can now order a spit kit, spit in a tube and send it off to various labs that can kind of give you a profile that is usually less scientific and more just for fun. Right, right. So slightly less reliable when, when you do it that way. Take it with a grain of salt. Yes, correct. <laughs> um, I guess the question that just came to my head is like when you were talking about how, you know, genetic, what, one of the things we can inherit is the way we process hormones and the way it kind of affects um, our, our mood and our bodies. I'm wondering if there's a way that you guys differentiate between that and perhaps the way the parents' hormones are affecting how they parent a child. Is that something that's difficult to differentiate? Yeah, well, the there's an area of genetics now called epigenetics that is looking more at environmental influences, and we have a way of, of looking at that now. So one of my colleagues, for example, is even doing research where they're looking at um, how growing up in a very stressed environment um, or growing up with a low socioeconomic status or malnutrition or to your point, the mother's pregnancy. So stressors in the mother's pregnancies and the hormones she might be giving off um, and how all of that might influence epigenetics. So I think of epigenetics as a way of almost um, turning on and off gene function. So you're born with that baseline code, right? But over time, it can be upregulated and downregulated, kind of turned up or turned down. And so some of these environmental factors, we're, we're really just learning how that might influence that pattern. Because it's like you said, genes can change as well. They're malleable in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And I'm assuming if thing, if they're being kind of turned off and turned on, that's kind of just changing the way your code is working as well. Yeah. So some of the research we do now, too, is looking at like cancer cells and not only just looking in that DNA code and what happened, but we actually do do uh, we look at the function through something called RNA sequencing and kind of seeing like, mm -hmm. oh, how is that expressed and why? Why is it different? And so we're starting to really learn um, more detail about that. Mm -hmm. 
I guess, what are the limitations right now in our understanding of genetics and personality? Yeah, so I think that, first of all, to go back to the ethics, there is a lot of fear in the Gattaca example. Um, when we do study psychiatric disease, people are afraid of maybe being labeled too prematurely with a disease. So there's a lot of still stigma um, with certain forms of genetic testing. There's also concern because of past misuses, maybe from like isolated populations or different ethnic minority populations. Um, there's a fear of discrimination and how that information might be used um, for negative purposes towards the population. So some of, some of the limitations actually are more um, things that have to do with ethics and utility and discrimination and kind of the application of the genetics. Um, in terms of the science, again, we can study almost anything now, but it produces a ton of data. So a huge part of the genetics field is really just trying to organize all this big data and then correlate it. Like, how do you take billions of DNA code letters and decipher it in a way that's understandable for someone? And then further, how do you deal with all of the ambiguity around someone's personality, for example, or their psychiatric presentation, which might evolve over time? Um, how do you put all that together? <laughs> so I think that is the biggest limitation is really getting a practical application at the end of the day that can be used for good to help someone. Yeah, that's just when you were talking about, I guess, psychiatric applications. Um, I, one of the things I thought about is like mood disorders um, and personality disorders. I'm sure they come come into this quite a lot. And that's one of the things that seems very obvious, like ADHD, for example, is is yeah. often genetic. Um, if, <laughs> if you have it, it's very likely a parent has it too. Or is that a myth? Am I, am I wrong about that one? <laughs> please feel, no, feel I mean, free to correct me. Yeah, again, you're right that there are correlates. Like we have studied autism for quite a while in our institute and then other... Um, yeah, it's schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, aut um, ADHD. So all of those do definitely have a genetic component. And with all of them, if you do have a close relative with those conditions, you're at a higher risk to develop those conditions. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so I guess that kind of brings me to the end of the interview segment. I <laughs> wanted now to move on to our practice slash habit experiment debrief. Since there isn't a real test <laughs> to check your personality <laughs> via genetics, um, let's let's kind of expand this and make it about personal development. What's something that you do to become the best version of yourself? Yeah, so one thing that is related to my personality is that I do know that I am prone to stress um, and not necessarily uh, handling it the best, and I can get ang anxious. So one thing that really does help me a lot is uh, to have a release for that anxiety. So I do that in the form of running. Another aspect of my personality that I've really discovered is that I need social engagement. So when I started in COVID and was isolated, um, that just really led to depression for me. 
So being able to get out in nature and then also now socialize, um, all of those components for me become wrapped into running because I run outside with a group. So it's like socialization, <laughs> running, nature, all of those are curative for me. Yeah. And I feel like when you're focusing on running, you're not really thinking about how stressful it is to have to like interact with other people and yeah. put on a face. <laughs> yes. Yes. Runners are known for being historically very nice people. <laughs> yeah. That is so <laughs> true. That say. is so true. <laughs> what are what are three good things that you found about this practice? Well, um, I really have found it as a huge stress reliever for me. Um, so it really helps my mental health. Physically, obviously, it helps me to maintain good physical health and good habits. And then I definitely see um, a benefit for my own endorphins. So I get the runner's high. It definitely makes my mood so much better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I that Do you kind of, what kind of areas are you running around? Are they kind of mountainous, hikey kind of places or... Is it just right straight? <laughs> yeah, I wish I lived in Australia and had mountainous places, but I'm in that Columbus, Ohio, which is very flat. Um, right now it's very cold, so it's about 19 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Cause we, uh, <laughs> but um, we, uh, I do live where it's beautiful trees. Um, we have like a lot of bike trails and running trails. And then, um, so yeah, I usually am running group runs, but we do pretty long runs and we, we can run all types of terrain, um, but it is pretty flat. <laughs> I'm, sh I'm sure that makes it easier though. You don't have to go anywhere yeah. uphill. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, I just looked up 19 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's negative 7.2 degrees Celsius, uh, which is terrifying to yeah. me. Yes, <laughs> it is terrifying. <laughs> Um, are there any challenges for you, um, with running? Um, certainly as I have aged, so I'm now 44 and I have three children. So, um, trying to balance all of, uh, my, my exercise habits get, get challenging time-wise. Um, and then just again, on these cold, dark days in Columbus, Ohio, I do just want to sleep in sometimes. So just making myself stick to that routine could be a challenge. Mm -hmm. What time, what time do you usually do it? I am usually a um, morning runner, so I tend to run around 6.30 a.m. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume with three kids, you would have to in order to, yeah, navigate yeah. all of that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Unless I'm running by circles around their soccer field. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, how, how often do you run in a week? Um, usually about three to four times. Okay. Okay. And uh, I guess uh, we've already answered the question of how did you find the time to do it? It's every morning and you have a group <laughs> keeping you accountable. Um, but I guess on those cold mornings, how do you end up uh, finding the motivation to get yourself out of bed? And, yeah. yeah. Uh, the hardest, hardest one for me is the group I run with on Friday mornings. And many of them are school teachers or work in hospitals with 7 a.m. arrival times. So they arrange their time to meet at 5.15 in the morning. Um, and so that is just a text chain that they all send out the night before and you feel very accountable. Um, and so I just have to set that alarm um, for very early and not think about it and show up before I'm awake. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> before you can even think about sleeping in again. Yes. Um, yes. Have you ever skipped? <laughs> I'm curious. Oh, yes. Oh, goodness. Yes. Especially if I'm not training for something. I think the other way I keep myself accountable is I sign up for at least two races per year. And then that way I have a goal that I'm working towards. So like, yeah. if I don't have a goal, then there's just no reason besides seeing my friends, but it's like, oh, I can see them another time. But if I have a goal that I have to work towards and increase that mileage or else the, the race will be awful, you know, that really keeps me motivated. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, how has this practice impacted your personal life or your perception, um, in life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my biggest realization was when it was taken away from me. So when, during my pregnancies, I ended up being confined to bed rest for two of them. And that was for several weeks, like six plus weeks for two of them. And um, again, I just realized, wow, you know, this is such a, a lift for my mood and everything else. So when I didn't have that, you know, it was very, very depressing and things like that. So, mm. um, so yeah, I think that, um, I've, I've realized the benefit over years and, and just seeing that play out. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, bed rest during pregnancy, you can't even substitute the running with anything else at home. You're just kind no. of confined to the bed. Yeah. Oh, sounds it's awful. Shout out to any woman who's ever done that. You oh, are a hero. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> Um, would you recommend this practice to everyone? I think that everyone should find what works for them. I know plenty of people that running is not their thing um, or um, they have injuries or other disabilities or things that wouldn't make it possible. So I just encourage everybody to find an exercise um, that works for you, whether or not that be vigorous or just more something gentle like yoga, but something that works for you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess in your experience, do you have any other kind of practices or habits that you would combine with this or maybe use in tandem to improve um, this particular practice? Yeah, I think your diet is really important. Um, if you're going to exercise to any degree, you definitely have to make sure that your body is fueled to do that exercise. So for me, another habit I have is meal planning, which I do at the beginning of every week. So every Saturday I make my grocery list and I buy those groceries when I go to the grocery store and then I don't have to think about my meals all week and I've got it kind of um, arranged so that like I'm getting more calories on the days I'm running and things like that. So. Definitely so do helps. you like pre, do you pre prepare it? Um, no. or is it? No, no. <laughs> that's too you make far. An organization <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do organize like in the evening, I look throughout the week on that Saturday and say like, where are the nights where it's going to be crazy? Like, where do the kids have stuff? Mm -hmm. Where do I have stuff so that I know which nights like need to be short and quick prep. Mm. And like leftovers might be okay, maybe like, you know, a couple mm -hmm. of times. Yeah, for yes. sure. For sure. Yes. I like, I've tried meal planning in the past. And for me, I think it's just that lack of spontaneity because I'm, I'm a cooker. I really enjoy like cooking. So it's that yes. lack of spontaneity that I'm like, I don't know if I can do it, but I guess something like just buying the groceries and knowing what's coming ahead might, might help get around that sure yeah and you can spice it up so again that is a personality trait just so you know that need for spontaneity um but um um you can kind of pre 
you can build in that spice, right? Like where you buy all the groceries, but maybe you don't plan the night like I do. Like we're not going to have this on Monday. We're going to, so that then you can still improv that night. Like I'm in the mood for this or, you know, maybe buy a couple extra ingredients so you can like spice it up a different way. Um, yeah, there's ways you can mix and match. I'm, I'm going to keep that in mind. I'm going to, I'm going to stop meal, meal prepping <laughs> in, in 2023. Um, <laughs> That brings us to the end of our debrief. Uh, so thank you for sharing all of that. I'm sure our audience really appreciates it. And I'm sure a lot of them are Googling um, local running groups right as we speak. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> to find something for themselves. Uh, we've got a couple of questions from our audience. Are you happy to answer them? Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, so we've got uh, one question here, which is something we kind of discussed um, earlier, but I guess we can touch on it in greater detail. How do environmental factors interact with genetics um, to influence personality? Yeah, so it does get pretty technical with um, that epigenetics. So that is a, a process called methylation, and that's how genes get turned on and turned off. So. Um, certainly we are still learning a lot about different environmental exposures, chemicals, different things that turn those genes on and off. And then also, um, even things like your mood or stressors or things like that. So that's really how it all comes together is that you're starting with this baseline DNA code, but then there's modifications that occur in how those genes get expressed. Mm -mm. And I guess, how new is epigenetics as a study? Mm, that's a good question. I probably don't know the exact year, but I would say I remember, I would say at least 20 years, um, mm -hmm. we've known how to do like actual scientific study of it um, and kind of understand the methyl groups and how that all works. Um, but certainly the concept I think has been recognized for far longer than that. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, next question. And this is a really interesting one. How might our understanding of genetics change in the future? Oh my gosh. Well, my favorite thing <laughs> about my profession. So I graduated in 2002 and so I've been in the field about 20, 21 years and, um, it's really not been the same. <laughs> I mean, any given year. So everything we learn changes. Um, and that's the variety I love in, in life. So I, I can be rigid on my meal planning, but my job is always changing. So I never do the same thing. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting. It's, it's hard to predict, but I will say that a big focus right now is AI and machine learning, um, to make, kind of understand these patterns and and different things. So I think um, what will evolve the most, of course, genetic technology will evolve, but what we're gonna see more is the um, compiling of all this data, right? To take metrics from your Fitbit watch and then correlate it with your DNA and then correlate it with your diet or, you know, whatever. And so I think what we're gonna see is um, a shift to big data applications and really understanding how we can use genetic uh, information to inform ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that we'll eventually get to a point where potentially um, with consent, you will get sequenced and you will have that information carried around on your smartphone. 
and you will have different trackers or different modifiers or whatever that, you know, are maybe correlated with that information um, to give you recommendations even potentially. So yeah, it will be kind of scary, but also potentially fascinating to see how it all, all evolves. Yeah, for sure. I wonder like what the kind of ethical ramifications of carrying your genomic sequence around on your like smartphone or smartwatch would be. I wonder what that would be like. Yeah, I mean, that is something in DNA research. The The team I lead um, is comprised of genetic counselors that consent for our research studies. And that's a large part of our discussion with families um, mm-hmm. is some of their concerns like about privacy, like who's going to have my DNA sequence are going to put it in a big public database. And um, there have been some human interest stories where, you know, criminals have been caught because essentially their relative does some genetic testing and it's uploaded to a cloud and um, that could be eventually linked to somebody, you know. So these are all very real possibilities um, that people need to be thoughtful about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. what this is kind of I, I I don't know if this is kind of genetics or personality related so much as it is intelligence related. Um, but the question is, what is different in the brains of people with genius level IQs um, that people with average intelligence don't possess? Yeah, I, I listened to actually your earlier podcast on mm. intelligence. Um, that, that was fascinating, you know, the neural yeah. networks and things like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that is definitely beyond my area of expertise, I would say. I don't know. I'm not a neuroscientist, so I probably can't mm. comment ideally on that one. Mm, okay, note to um, the person who set this in, um, IQ is neuroscience, <laughs> not <laughs> genomes, a uh, slightly different field That's of a science. great question. There is, is, I mean, there is a man named Dario Nardi who is studying personality types. He studies cognitive wiring um, using an EEG machine. Um, mm-hmm. And then again, the person I mentioned, Denise Cook, who is doing some genetics work, is very interested in correlating kind of EEG patterns and intelligence and personality types and things like that. Um, But when they've looked at things like personality type and correlations with intelligence, there has not been a clear leader with that. It's not like because your personality type XYZ, you're necessarily more intelligent. And then same with the genetic code. Um, We always might, you know, sure, if you do enough analysis, you'll find some kind of correlate, but can that be replicated? Um, not really. So it's really, really hard to uh, kind of find cause and effect relationships for any of this. Yeah, there's not kind of enough, I guess, it's safe to say at the moment, at least, that they're separate um, measures entirely. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that kind of brings us to the end of our audience questions at the moment. might move on now to our open mic section uh, where I let you have a little TED talk about whatever you want um, for a little while. Uh, what what did you want to address uh, today? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. It's a dream of mine to do an actual TED talk and it probably will be on genetics if I actually do a real <laughs> TED talk. Um, but I did want to use the opportunity just to talk a little bit about um, since this is a personal development podcast, a little bit about coaching um, and the impact that that has had 
um, for me. So uh, part of my side hobby with the personality type is actually applying it to coaching. And so through the personality hacker group, I first learned how to profile individuals and help them identify their best fit personality type. Um, and then learned more about the dynamics for health and unhealth. And now I'm actually in a coaching class um, called Coaching Fundamentals that is is really focused on coaching individuals based on their personality type because one size doesn't fit all right in any context just about. So when you think about coaching, sure, we can all benefit from certain strategies or self-help books or things like that. Um, but when you really understand at a deep level how you are cognitively wired to take in information, make decisions with that information, receive feedback from the outside world, um, what kind of your blind spots might be, that understanding, A, just having that understanding of yourself and recognizing that there is a consistent pattern to that. Um, of course, we all deviate at times, so we all have these natural preferences. So then if you can prescribe in a way specific coaching guidance to somebody in a way that will appeal to those styles like this is going to make sense for you because this is how you make decisions so i'm going to actually guide you based on that decisional style or i'm going to guide you to take in information based on a way that works well for you so that will be more resonant with you um, and so I really love the kind of personality style way of, of coaching. I found it extremely helpful in my own life. Um, and when I went through coaching myself, just had so many realizations of things that were core to me, like needing to engage with people on a regular basis. Um, just really understanding like, oh, I'm an extrovert. Like I get built up by people. So this isolation is not working for me. You know, it's not necessarily rocket science, but finally accepting yourself um, and then growing yourself in a way that helps you become the best version of yourself and not trying to um, become some version of somebody else's best self. So I would highly recommend coaching. I did start my own coaching business, um, which is called Your Genius Coaching, LLC. Um, and so I'm really loving the opportunity to help people really understand themselves and then take that understanding to grow um, and navigate personal challenges, but be that interpersonal or career, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really cool because uh, first of all, fantastic TED talk. I'm sure you'll do great when you actually, <laughs> <laughs> when you actually end up doing one. Um, but I, I think, I think sometimes coaching gets a bad rep because a lot of them treat it as a one size fits all approach as opposed to you know catering it to how people actually learn and as someone who is personally um you know neurodivergent i know very very well that <laughs> the traditional ways of teaching and learning yes. are not are not for me um yes. and that it's very important for me to mold my learning into something that works for me in order for me to actually take in any information at all so yeah it, it is very it is very cool um what you're doing i think it can help a lot more than just neurodivergent people i think it's just something that needs to be commonplace <laughs> understanding that everyone's different yeah yeah exactly and i will say that it's totally antithesis to my very structured scientific world because my job is very um based on core science and replication and so i believe in all of those principles but also, um, I think that, you know, life is complex and um, 
you know, it interpersonally as a counselor, I have dealt with families over a long period of time and experienced lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. Um, mm -hmm. And so just that need to customize to really help someone individually achieve their potential. I think that's like really important. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure really rewarding as well for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. my side gig for now, but it is, uh, again, a connectedness is a huge part of what I need as a person to feel fulfilled. Um, mm -hmm. And so it really allows me to have that feeling of altruism and connection and, and you know, guiding another person. So I find it really rewarding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now to kind of close off, to conclude, where can our audience find you? Yeah, so a few different places. I am fairly active on LinkedIn, which is um, just uh, my name. So Elizabeth Varga, MSCJC. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Liz Varga. I do have an Instagram account for my business. It's at Your Genius Coaching. Um, and then lastly, my website is yourgeniuscoaching.com. Um, that is the best way really probably to connect with me um, on a uh, interactive level um, because you can certainly email me through that website. Yeah, for sure. And you can find um, Liz on any running group uh, in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can Google my sure. name and you can see all my running statistics. <laughs> yeah. My for biggest sure. claim to fame was actually running a marathon, um, the Boston Marathon. Oh. And I had qualified for that marathon um, before I had my third son and I had no intention of having a their child um and so ended up being pregnant um and then delivering only 12 weeks before the race and um you have to qualify for boston so i was very afraid i would never qualify again um so i went from bed rest uh in pregnancy to running boston 12 weeks later so if you do oh, google me you will see pictures of me boston postpartum baby at the race that was oh a highlight God. Oh my God. That's incredible. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's definitely something to, that's awesome. That's inspirational. I feel like I'm going to go try and run a marathon now. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Liz. I've had such a wonderful time chatting with you, uh, today and I've learned, I've learned a lot. I feel like I had a lot of misconceptions about genetics and how they work, um, that have been cleared up. Oh, yeah. So thank you very much. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Absolutely. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kutti. Thanks for tuning in.